0: Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to continue on in our series in the book of Philippians. Now here's what we're doing. We're looking at how Paul talked to the church that was in Philippi. We're, we're, we're taking a look at how he addressed those believers and his encouragement and example to them, and we're taking some things from, from his example and his words to them and seeing how it would apply to us today. The Bible is not an ancient book that's out of date. It is completely relevant for today, and we cannot forget that. So. We're going to jump in here. There's only two points this week. We normally have three or, well, nine, but we're only going to have two two this week. And so on your notes, the first one, the first thing that we want to draw out of this passage of scripture in uh, Philippians chapter one is uh, the first note is open our mouth. Open our mouth. Last week, we got through verses 1 through 6. This week, we're going to be through in verses 7 through 11. So let's read Philippians 1, 7, 8. I'll read it out loud here for us. So it is right that I, this is Paul talking to the church, that I should feel as I do about all of you. For you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus." So the reason that Paul has this, this special place in his heart for the, the church in Philippi is because when he's in prison, they make him a care package to support him while he's there. They send food. Um, there's some evidence that they sent him like a coat. They sent him parchment papers and some other things that he might need to write letters to other people, but to also to try to help sustain him while he's in prison. So um, they they send this with a man from their church. He hand delivers it to him. And then Paul sends this letter back to them, thanking them for the support. So what he's saying here is, because of that support, all of you guys are sharing in the work that's going on here, even though I'm in prison, and he's defending and confirming the truth of the good news. He's defending and confirming the truth of the good news. The reason this is important is not only because they're because they support him. They're not just uh, um, supporting his work and kind of you know getting a, a kind of a, a, a secondary blessing, if you will, type of a scenario for for helping support his ministry that's going on there. He's setting an example for them to say, hey, you should be defending and confirming the gospel where you are as well. None of these words in Scripture are wasted. None of these words that happen from, um, from the point of, uh, of Paul to this church are wasted. None of them. And so what he's exampling for them, he's encouraging them that, hey, um, uh, you, I, you're supporting me as I defend the gospel, but he's also encouraging them, you need to step forward and defend and, and, um, and, and confirm the gospel as well. This is wildly difficult for the people and the believers that are in the Philippian church. And here's why. Next line in your notes. The city of Philippi was a city built for retired Roman soldiers, so it was well known for its Roman patriotism. The city of Philippi was a city built for retired Roman soldiers, so it was well known for its Roman patriotism. Now, if you know anybody who's in the military here in the United States, you know that these guys are all in. They're all about you know country. They're all about the flag. They're all about you know uh, sworn to defend the Constitution of the United States. And you know how much it means to them when they hear the national anthem played. Many you know they still the ones that can still stand stand in at attention. Even as uh, people who've been out of it for a very long time, these veterans um, still have this, this, um, this pride and this, um, um, that, that just wells up inside of them every time they hear it. These men are loyal to our country here in the United States. These men that were in Philippi, these soldiers, are even more committed and more loyal to their nation and emperor because... Here, we're loyal to the, you know, our soldiers are defending the constitution, not a man, a political party, a politician, or anything like that. But there, next line in your notes, they believed their emperor was divine and a descendant of the gods. In their eyes, Caesar, who was their emperor, was their lord and savior. They didn't just have a respect for their nation and for the people who are making decisions. They believed that their emperor was actually sent from the gods, little g, that, that somewhere up there they have divinely you know, kind of orchestrated him getting into this leadership position. He is a descendant of the gods, and he is their Lord and Savior. These men were hardened from their time in the military because they've seen wild things. They've taken part in conquering other countries, cities, nations, other peoples, other lands. They've gone in and destroyed them. They put them to death. They've forced them into servitude in one way, shape, or form. These men are hardened not from, from the cause of freedom that you know we think of military action you know, should, should be um, birthed from today. They're hardened from obeying the direction of the emperor. Let us also not forget one of the more popular things in Scripture that the Roman soldiers' job was to to fulfill. Crucifixion. The Roman soldiers were the executioners in this culture. They were very used to the blood of someone dripping on them while they hung on a cross. They were very much used to the... um, uh, the, the, the dead bodies hanging on a post. They were very much used to seeing these people weep at the foot of this crucifixion and this cross. They're very much used to the brutality because they are the ones who are, who are whipping people, who are, who are putting them in chains, who are dragging them from their place of imprisonment to death. They're very hardened men who believe that their emperor is their God. Now, put yourself in that, that setting and scenario for a moment. And now here's Paul telling them to defend and confirm the gospel. Can you imagine you know we we hear people who are today who are apprehensive about sharing christ with people right but can you imagine living in philippi where you got to walk up to a soldier who believes that the king the emperor is divine and god and his salvation and go no bro He's just a dude, just like you. There ain't nothing special about him except the position that he holds and this lie that everybody believes that he's divine. No, that's not, um, that, that's not the truth. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the light of the world. Your emperor is not. Can you imagine what that was like to tell those hardened men who are used to executing people? imagine the trepidation that would be inside of them the hesitancy to share the gospel yet here he is exampling and admonishing them to do exactly that just think about for a second if you were to walk into one of the most um, loyal military bases here in the united states and one of the most loyal um, military states in texas Imagine walking in there one day in the middle of of lunch during mess hall and ripping the the flag, the U.S. flag off the flagpole, throwing it on the ground, dumping a plate of food on it and saying, the United States stinks. What's going to happen to you in that moment? Right? You're probably going to get tuned up pretty well. Right? You're probably gonna feel the brunt force of people who are loyal, but my guess is it's probably not gonna cost you your life because somebody in there said, I hate what they're saying, but I am living to defend their right to say it, and you probably make it out alive. Bruised, bleeding maybe a little bit, fat lip probably black eye, but you make it out alive because they have an overarching set of principles that they're trying to defend. But these Roman soldiers have no such principles. Their whole goal is to carry out the wish of the emperor. And you walk in and telling them that the emperor that they serve, that they look at as God, is not God? After they have fought, their their friends have died on the battlefield. They have gone through so much torture and torment and PTSD and all of this. They're sitting here telling their war stories because they think think their emperor is God. And here comes these little people who call themselves Christians to be like, no, you're wrong. Everything you believed in your life was wrong. Jesus is the son of God. Next line in your notes, believers who lived in Philippi were risking their lives to follow in the footsteps of Paul. They were risking their very lives. I imagine that for people who, who recently converted, who gave their life to Christ, that when they realize I'm supposed to spread this message the way it was spread to me? I'm supposed to take the truth of the gospel to a city that was built on this huge patriotism that the, believes the emperor is the king and he is, he is a god and he is my savior? I got to go tell those guys? I imagine if it was me, there would be a little hesitancy and trepidation in my heart to go, ooh, this is uh, getting really serious real quick because um, this could cost me my life it could really cost me my life. That happened more than 1,900 years ago, and although today we don't currently face, not yet at least, uh, execution for professing our faith in Christ and speaking truth to those who are lost, there is a similar fear that I see in people today when it comes to sharing and defending in confirming the truth of the gospel. It's funny how that fear is still present today as it was 1900 years ago when more than 1900 years ago when this letter was written. The fears are different, but the fear remains. I would like to tell you that every single time that I have felt the Holy Spirit prompt me to say something in a moment where people were slandering the gospel or not presenting it correctly. I would like to tell you that I had the guts enough, that I had the in, you know, intestinal fortitude, the courage, the boldness, the bravery, to stand up and correct them. But if I told you that, I'd be lying. Because I have felt the pressure to keep my mouth shut when I knew I shouldn't. See, standing up, next on your note, standing up as a believer in Christ and defending the gospel in our culture will continue to grow increasingly difficult. It, not, it, it's not gonna, it might grow inc- increasingly difficult. Nope. 50-50 shot, it gets harder or... Nope. It is guaranteed it will grow increasingly difficult to defend and share the gospel in our culture. If I look back on my own failures in this area, and I look back on conversations that I've had with people who have have been fearful in that moment, or had trepidation or hesitancy to share the gospel, there is one major reason we remain silent when defending the gospel, and that word is fear. It's the only reason we remain silent. We can be afraid of many things in our culture, but let's look at a couple of them. We can be afraid of what others think of us. Man, am I going to stand up for what I believe right here and these guys are going to think that I'm just some crazy nut job? There can be fear of being, quote unquote, canceled. We live in a culture that's cancel culture, where if you say the wrong thing or, or tweet the wrong thing or like the wrong post or whatever, people are coming after your job. They're trying to shut your business down. They're trying to do things to silence people who would tell the absolute truth. And that can be a fear, a fear of losing relationships. I've had friends my whole life and, and now that I gave my life to Christ or I'm kind of becoming more bold with what I believe or are they going to stop wanting to hang out with me? The fear of being unfairly labeled, of being isolated, of being embarrassed, of being mocked, the fear of not knowing enough. And as I wrote all these down, I thought, man, what fears could come over somebody? This list came out of my mouth and onto this paper very quickly because I don't know about you, but every single one of these have been fears in me. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that one who everybody's like, oh, I can't say this because he walked in the room. I don't want the, the, the be the one where everybody puts the mask on. I was on an airplane one time and this guy sitting next to me, you know, he was working in some job and he was just, every third word was cussing and, you know, dropping F-bombs and all this kind of stuff. And then he asked me, he's like, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm in the ministry. And all of a sudden he went, uh. <laughs> well, blessings, brother. You know what I mean? Like his vocabulary totally changed. I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. You know what I mean? Why? Because I don't want to feel dumb. I don't want to feel embarrassed. I don't want to feel the rejection. I don't want the isolation to happen. And as I looked over my own list of things that I put on this paper this week, as I sat and thought about it, a very hard truth descended on me really quickly. It's a hard one, and I wrote it down in your notes so that we could all experience the hard together, and it wasn't just the conviction on me. And here it is. When we allow fear to override obeying the Lord, our fear of man is greater than our fear of God. When we allow fear to override obeying the Lord, our fear of man is greater than our fear of God. And as someone who grew up in church, and it was like, I'm going to go you know, full blazing forward into the world and reach the gospel as a younger man, to realize that that at times has been true in my own life has been its own level of humiliation, conviction, and embarrassment. That I have allowed the fear of an opinion of another created being, a man or woman, to affect my obedience and submission to the Creator. I'm not talking about juvenile arguments with people who you don't know on social media. This is not what Paul's referring to. Nameless people who put like little clever little titles online and mock people or make fun of them, and we'll never know. Fighting with them is like spitting into a headwind. It's just going to come back on you, and you're going to be the one with all the garbage on your face. It makes no, no difference. But what Paul is doing, next line in your notes, is he is encouraging us to have the boldness of Almighty God to speak up in the appropriate moments. He doesn't just say this to the the people and the believers in the city of Philippi. He also says this in another letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6, 19-20 ask God to give me the right word so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I'm in chains now still preaching this message as God's ambassador so pray that I will keep speaking boldly for him as I should. As I found this scripture, the words boldly were the things that I was really focusing on at the beginning. Like he, he's asking while he's in chains, the apostle Paul is asking for other believers to pray for him that he would have the boldness to defend and clearly communicate the gospel wherever he is in chains or free. He's asking for that. So then he says, so pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him. And that's where I was like, yeah, we need that boldness. And then the last three words, man, got me. As I should. See, I wish he wouldn't have said that. I wish it was left as an option. Like the super Christians get the, the extra boldness to go out there and talk about the gospel to the people. The people that, you know, you got to cross a certain, certain, certain threshold, right? you got to memorize a couple, of, you know, more than 50 verses and kind of know the majority of the, the books of the Bible or something. you got to pray a certain number of hours a day. I wish it was like, but when he said, so as, as I should, the implication was it is something that we all should be doing. He doesn't leave us an option. He lays it out as this is something we should be participating in. He's saying that regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the pushback, that he needs the strength to keep preaching the gospel because that's what all of us should do. He is admonishing the believers in both Philippi and Ephesus and by extension us. To boldly speak up say something and publicly profess our belief in christ even if it costs you something <clears throat> when i was in uh, high school ninth grade i was in this class and uh, they i don't know why they picked our class there was thousands of kids kids in our high school but some for some reason they picked this class that we were in and there's probably like 60 of our students you know in like two or three classes and they gave us this really big piece of paper and they said we want you to draw a poster about earth day and in all honesty i had no clue what earth day was and so someone explained it to me i was like oh so i realized what it, earth day was and so i'm like what am i going to write about this i'm just kind of learning about it you know what am i going to draw what kind of picture am i going to make or whatever and so in the best uh i'm still in a i'm still not a good drawer but in the best ninth grade version of matt who wasn't a good drawer now and sh- Certainly wasn't a good drawer then. All you graphic design people will kind of pat me on the head and be like, oh, that's nice. But um, they, uh, I, I drew as best I could a picture of the planet. And then it hit me after I drew the planet. I'm like, oh, I put these two hands underneath it on the picture. And at the top of it, I said, while the hype over Earth Day and at the bottom, I wrote, look who created it. And so they put my pile, my my picture, in a stack of all of these posters and for some reason I got nominated to go and take this to the vice principal to get sign off to put all these things around the school. So I walked in knowing that this is kind of a little, I don't know, it's a little bit of controversy, you know? And so I walked in there and put all these things on his desk and he's like, oh, these for Earth Day? I said, yeah. So he looked at the first one and then he looked at the second one and kind of just flipped through a couple of them. He's like, great. And he proceeded without seeing mine to initial and sign off that all of these things got hanged up in the school. So that was on a Monday. They were going to hang them up Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the rest of the week. And so we all came into school on Tuesday to see every one of our, pic- of our pictures and posters up on the wall, including mine. And we were like, this is cool, man. They displayed our artwork, you know, or my quasi artwork, you know. And uh, so they went through and I would kind of walk by during the day and I'd look by people and they'd be kind of like pointing at it and having a conversation, you know. And I'd be like, oh, this is cool, you know. So that was on Tuesday. So Wednesday, I walked into school. I was going to look for my picture and mysteriously, it was the only one that was now not there. And so I went to the class and I said, My teacher was like, hey, um, let's see my picture up there. And they're like, oh, that was yours. I'm like, yeah. They go, "Uh, the vice principal wants to see you. And I walked down there. I was getting my story straight. I'm like, bro, I didn't trick you. I handed all of these to you, you know. And uh, so he went in there, and he's got it rolled up and sitting in the corner in his office. And as I sat down, he said, "Um, you know what? Um, I love this picture. Loved it. Caused a lot of discussion between faculty and staff and some students and stuff. He goes, but last night I got a complaint. And I knew the girl to complain because she was mocking me the whole time I was drawing the thing anyway. And I, she, he goes, I got to complain. And if I do this for you, I got to let all the other weird religious people that do all these things that are not really what me and you believe, but I got to watch out for all of them. <laughs> you know, he's like some kind of undercover, you know, we boys, but I can't say it out there, you know, kind of a thing. And um, he goes, so um, uh, we had to take it down, but you're free to take it home. And in that moment, uh, the kid who was raised as the, you know, run into hell with a, with a squirt gun. You know what I mean? Kind of that, that kind of attitude, like hair on fire, go reach the lost. The kid that wore the dumbest, cheesiest uh, Christian t shirt you've ever seen on a human being. That was me. I'm the, I'm the Christian the devil warned you about, you know, like with a hand-drawn kid with a skateboard like this, you know, like on the back of it. Uh, I, it was just bad. And if you're a Christian t-shirt maker, Just stop. I'm just kidding. I mean, like, creative, creativity, creativity. Go find my friend, Dabby. He's got a great line up there. But um, the shirts I bought were terrible. They were just terrible. And um, instead of Sprite, it said Spirit. (laughs) Like, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm embarrassed talking about it. We're going to move on. Um, So, but I learned right there, I learned right there that I needed to, The the situation... Indirectly taught me that I had to second guess before I did something. It planted this little seed in me that made me, every time I wanted to say something, it made me go, Eargh. Am I going to pay the price for this? Are people going to complain? Am I wasting my effort here because they're going to take the picture down anyway? Do I just go out there and do it for any reason or... And it made me second guess. And that was in 1989. Not 2021. That cancel culture is far worse, far worse today than it was then. And so our children are indirectly being taught you better be careful what you say come in here with that jesus stuff and talking about all that stuff in the bible and there's going to be repercussions for you and what's happening is there the same way it was instilled in me only on a much higher level the children that we have today who are watching all of this insanity go on in our culture are asking themselves the same question There are many adults in this room who may be asking themselves the same question. Is it worth it to say anything? I'll just keep to myself, go to heaven, live a good life, and I'll just tell people if they ask me, but I'm just gonna move on and mosey on about my day. Paul doesn't give that as an option. I'm not telling you to be dumb. I'm not telling you to, to wear a sandwich board with, you know, turn or burn, get sanctified or french fried on the side of the corner, you know, and yell at people in the cars that are at a red light. I'm not telling you to do something stupid like that. What I'm telling is, well, I mean, if God told you to go do it, go do it. But I'm not telling you to go, you know, try to find some way to prove that I'm defending the gospel. What I'm telling you is, are you ready to open your mouth and be counted on the side of Christ? and defend the gospel when it's not presented correctly will people label you if you do this yes will people call you names yes will these things hurt your feelings absolutely will we feel as if we don't deserve to be treated this way yep Will we ask questions like, why in the world do I have to do this? All I did was be nice to these people. Uh, Look at Jesus. All He did was heal, save, correct the religious people, give grace to those who were living immoral lives, and He was still the one who was crucified? And He's the one we're following? It's definitely going to happen to us. But here's the question will those fears that we talked about earlier prevent us from standing up in a culture that is growing publicly hostile to the principles of scripture or will we stand and be counted with christ anyway what i like about this church is that when we ask questions people just don't go yes people stop and go will i which is why I put the reflection question for us this week. So when you go back and read these notes or spend time with the Lord, you can ask yourself a question, who do I fear more, man or God? And you standing up, defending the clarity of the gospel of Christ, emboldens your children who are dealing with the same hesitancy that you feel only in a teenage or middle school age body. It is inspiring the other people who desperately want to say something. Because as we'll, as we'll uh, learn later on in Philippians, the people became more bold because Paul paid the price and went to jail. If that dude can say something and then deal a Roman jail with Roman soldiers and Roman guards, I can stand out here and say something and defend the gospel. Who do we fear more, man or God? Point number 2, last point for the message today. <clears throat> that we're going to pull out of this passage of scripture is filled to overflowing. Filled to overflowing. So Paul has just exampled to all the all the people the believers in Philippi, you need to stand up, you need to be bold, you need to be counted, you need to to, to um, have that that courage to stand and speak and tell the truth, to defend and bring the clarity of the gospel to whoever would hear it. but he fought, Paul follows this up with his charge of boldness next line here notes. Paul follows up this charge of boldness with a reminder. Of how we're supposed to portray that boldness. See, some people view boldness as just running out and you know kicking the door open. I'm here, and Jesus love you, repent, suckers. You know what I mean? Like they re- they they view it like that. Like it's got to be some kind of aggressive tactic, right? But in verses nine through eleven in Philippians chapter one, Paul outlines how we're supposed to be bold. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. In these two small scriptures, or these three small scriptures, 9, 10, and 11, I want to look at quickly, before we wrap up our time here today, three quick statements. I'm going to work back to front. Letter A. How does the righteous character Paul is speaking of flow out of us? And before we get into that, let me, let me say one thing. I have heard most of my life about the fruits of the Spirit, right? We had a whole series last year on the fruits of the Spirit. If you missed that, go back and catch it. A lot of great stuff in, the, in that series. I don't know that I ever heard about the fruit of your salvation, there's a fruit of the Spirit that's in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? But there's a fruit of salvation that happens in us. And he explains what that is. You may, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. Character. Um, integrity. Doing the right thing when no one's around. Maintaining my moral compass when it would be easy to close the lid on that thing and shove it under the bed and do whatever it is I'm about to do. A strong work ethic, commitment, conviction, honesty, characteristics of Christ. How does the righteous character Paul is speaking flow out of us? In three ways. It's the next three little lines in, the, in your notes here. It flows out of us in our temper, our words, and our actions. I was doing some commentary study, and I was ready for the words and actions. I wasn't ready for the temper. Because my temperament is in control whenever... I give my life to Christ as a fruit of my salvation. The Adam Clark biblical commentary gave a great definition or a, a great summary of that statement, I'm um, filled with the fruit of your salvation. That's the next line there in your notes. The definition of being filled with the fruit of your salvation is the equivalent to the whole soul is occupied by them. The whole soul is occupied by them. Man, I love that. Is my whole soul occupied by the fruit of my salvation, which is the character that God commits and instructs us to have? You may be thinking, well, Matt, I know people who aren't saved who are honest. I know people who are not saved that wouldn't steal anything from me. They have integrity. If I, I left a bag of money with, with some of them you know, that aren't saved, they would come back to me. And I have a friend who is saved that I'm not really sure I would ever do that with, right? Um, I know people who are not saved who, who, um, who have some of these characteristics. Is it possible to have some of them without being saved? Absolutely. But they will not be maintained because they are required on a selfish Effort. They are not sustained by a life that has moved not from good to bad, but from dead to alive. And that life that's beating inside of us has the <clears throat> fruit of that character. So the next reflection question for us this week is, Is our whole soul occupied by the fruit of our salvation? Or, are there pieces that we've held back because we have a good enough excuse to justify why we're not acting like Jesus in this area? Is there a part of us where we compromise that character of Christ, what we know to be right as people who are following Christ? Is there a part of that that we go, I can compromise on this because I'm not really ready to give up control on this one. I like the feeling that happens when I do fill in the blank. I like what happens. I I can justify it to a point or is my whole soul occupied with that character? Second thing he, I want to draw our attention to out of those three verses is letter B in your notes. is says, what really matters? What really matters? <clears throat> Here's what he says, For I want you to understand what really matters so you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. I want you to understand what really matters. When we're talking about the things that really matter, let's, let's do the opposite real quick. Let's talk about the things that don't matter. What doesn't matter? When we're talking about boldness, when we're talking about pursuing Christ, defending the faith, when we're talking about doing all of those things, we're talking about having the, the, the character of God, the fruit of our salvation, occupy our entire soul. When that comes into play, let's talk about the things that don't matter first. The first thing that doesn't matter is winning the argument if you're going to be in a confrontation or a situation, like a positive confrontation, where you're going to defend the gospel, it doesn't matter if you win the argument. If we're going to be in a situation like that, it doesn't matter. Um, what doesn't matter is dropping the truth bomb. Like, I got you. You can't say nothing about what I just said because I said it in a way that it has you can't even respond to. The third thing that doesn't matter is Walking away from the confrontation looking good. Because every one of those things puts the light on me and not the light on Christ. And I become defensive of myself and my reputation and and, and the way I look and my feelings. But when my goal was never to do that, it's to defend the gospel. Because that's what we're charged as people of God to do. I'm not telling you to willfully become the idiot but i'm saying if it becomes to the point where you're going to be mocked for what you stand for and it's going to cause you a little bit of a, a, a emotional sadness take the sadness and proclaim the good news of christ so what does matter living and defending the gospel i put both of those there on port, on purpose defending the gospel we've been talking about but living the gospel Living it out in front of people so that they see the fruit of your salvation and the fruit of the Spirit, alive and working. The second thing that matters, sharing the good news of Jesus. The third thing that matters, loving God and loving others. Do you see how we're turning the attention away from the things that make us look good and pointing the attention to uh, the defending the faith and making Christ be the center of, of everything that we're about? This has to happen in church from the ministry perspective. The people who sit here and teach, the elders, the, the pastors, the shepherds, all the way down to people who, are, who are, are, are feel like, man, I'm just a believer. Yes, but you are a believer. This charge is equal for us all. And the very last thing that um, I want to pull out of this, this scripture, I really feel applied to us, is letter C on your notes. Paul says we are to be filled with the character produced by a life in Christ, but we're supposed to overflow with love. Paul says we are to be filled with the character produced by a life in Christ, but we're supposed to overflow with love. So, if you've been wondering what my big bowl of fruit here has been for... This right here, there's a couple little spaces in there. I could have rammed another lime or something in there, but um, this is a little bit of a physical representation of the fruit of your salvation, what it's supposed to look like. Why does the Bible continually use this fruit analogy? Because it's something that's growing in you but it's also something that someone else can sample. So when someone looks at your life and they reach in and go, hmm, I see loyalty. Oh, wait, look, there's integrity. Wait a minute, there's also hmm, honesty. There's a hard work ethic. There is dealing with people the right way. Look at all of this stuff that's active and going on in this person's life. This is the fruit of salvation. And this is what the baseline minimum standard for people who have given their life to Christ should look like. We don't We don't remain empty and wait for the fruits of the Spirit to develop. God starts us off with this fruit of the character that comes from living a life in Christ. This should be in us already. So when we talk about um, uh, what's growing in our life, the first thing that happens is your salvation. And that character should produce that type of fruit in us. I have to admit that when I thought about man it should be full like that all the time. Yes, because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on was I made new. Do I have to choose these things? Sure. But as people pick through your life, they should see the fruit of your salvation. <clears throat> it's already full. You've got character, you've got integrity, you've got all of this stuff already in here because you didn't go, God didn't save, didn't come to the world to make good people or bad people good. He came to make dead people alive and if you are alive in Christ, your bucket, your bowl should already be full of the fruit of your salvation and since you don't have to earn your salvation, it happens when you believe, this happens fairly quickly you may have heard stories of people who say, man, I watched a lot of inappropriate things. I went a lot of inappropriate places. I, I used to participate in a lot of inappropriate things, immoral things, and they, when, they're saved, when they're not saved and when they get saved, all of a sudden, man, these things are wrong. I haven't felt that before. It's because now there's fruit of the salvation that's living inside of you and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is now inside of you. But he says, this is the starting point. This is not the goal. He says at the very beginning of verse 9, I pray that your love will overflow more and more. He says, you're already filled with the fruit of your salvation And then there should be so much of yielding my life and doing what is right in the sight of God that the love should just begin to overflow and spill out on everything and everybody around me. It should not be able to contain it because my life is full of the fruit of salvation and now it is just overrunning with love. You should not be able to contain all of that. And here's what I mean. Let me specifically deal with the men that are in the room real quick. When we say love, the word love, typically um, the, our, the women in the room have a better emotional handle on what this means and how it applies to different situations. And if that's not the case for you, it is 100% the case in my marriage. <laughs> I thank God for Nina on, these, on a lot of moments. This is one of them. But men, when we talk about and when you see in Scripture that it says that you need to over, be overflowing and overrunning with love, it doesn't mean like, oh, come here and let me give you a hug. Let's hold hands as we walk out to the car after service. It doesn't mean, you know, come up here and give me a little pat on the cheek when you see me and be like, I love you, man. No. Do we love people enough To tell them the truth. Do we love somebody enough that if they're driving headfirst down a road with a sign that says danger, destruction at the end, and they're going to run off the cliff, do we love them enough to be like, oh, that's just what they want to do. Just let them go. It's their life. They can just do whatever they want. Or are we going to stand there on the side and do everything we can to stop them, stop from going down this road? Don't go down there. Do not go off the cliff. I've seen what happens. People have gone off that road before. I've watched them make decisions that lead to death. That, my friends, that's love. Do you love someone enough to forgive them when they purposely did you wrong? Do you love them enough not to rain down on their head when they are caught in a mistake and they know it and they've come to you kind of sheepishly, not knowing how to say you're sorry? Do we love them enough to show them the grace that God showed us? The way that love is expressed between you know men and women can be different at some times, sometimes it's similar, sometimes it's different. I do not want us to have a convoluted view of love and we are afraid to participate in it because we're like, oh, it's just kind of lovey-dovey stuff. I'll use an old 1980s word on you. I'm not looking for some sissified approach to, oh, just rainbows and butterflies, no. Because love stands in the way of someone who is running toward destruction and says, you may fight me tooth and nail, but I'm going to do everything I can to tell you the truth and say, please don't go down this road. I love you enough. I don't want you to end in destruction. Is there... Is that love overflowing in us? Because he says, he prays that love will overflow, not just once, but more and more. Meaning that it overflows more than it did yesterday, today, and tomorrow it's going to overflow even more. And the day after that is going to be even more than the more that happened tomorrow. You see what I'm saying? It should consistently be coming out of us. The summary of these five or six scriptures that we've read here today is something I I wrote down at the very bottom of your notes, and it's this. We, and when I say we, I mean believers and followers and disciples of Christ, we are to boldly stand for the gospel and be counted as a child of God while being filled with the character of Jesus and overflowing with the love God Himself gives to His children. That, my friends, is a mouthful.